It is an honor that God can use broken men to be fathers by his spirit to pour into the life of other young men and women. I've had my birth dad, I've had spiritual fathers, and they've all played a role, though imperfect in themselves, in helping me to become the man I am today. And I pray that God will use me in all my imperfect ways to help my kids grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So happy Father's Day to you. Uh, may I pray that you are feeling blessed today and honored, uh, not in how much you get to rest and do what you want to do, but in knowing that you get the responsibility, the awe responsibility, the awestruck responsibility to be God's chosen shepherd for the young people in your life. And know that it's never too late to grow in that area and to pasture those kids that God's put in your life no matter what the age. Amen, church? Amen. 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 Well, as we get to God's word this morning, there is just one more act of celebration uh, that we need to do. Uh, I'm going to take this button off, though, because I don't want you guys staring here the whole time being sad that you guys are not the best father ever. So I'll take that away. We, we, we have a celebration to do, and I brought my favorite celebrating thing to do, my confetti cannon to celebrate. <laughs> Anybody know what we're celebrating today? Today is the 148th birthday of Echo Lake Church. 148, actually tomorrow. Tomorrow is 148, 148 years. Son, if you could pick these up after service, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> 148 years ago, Conrad Vreeland, who used to own a, pretty much everywhere up here, and a bunch of, a small group of other people in the early 1870s started a small Bible study, and then eventually uh, they had a heart to plant a church here, and they planted it here on Macapin Road, where we sit and we stand and we celebrate now. As a side note, fun history, it was originally supposed to be on Ridge Road, if you know where that is, but they got convinced to move it here. And through all the years, and as I've read all the church history here, had a lot of ups, it's had a lot of downs, a lot of mountains, and a lot of valleys. But through it all, God has been ever faithful. And he continues to be faithful this morning. And he continues to be faithful as we move forward. For however many years, God has this church here to preach the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. So um, next year I'll have cupcakes or something or a cake or something. McKenna, you can buy like a, a birthday cake next year and it can be the shape of the church chapel. What do you think? Yeah? Yeah, okay, sounds good. Sounds good. Two years, two years from now, it's the 150th anniversary. You might have to do something special for that one. Um, all right, with that said, we're gonna be faithful to God's faithfulness to us by getting into his word this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that 148 years ago, you put it on the hearts of a small group of people to plant a church. And now because of that church, we are here to fellowship together, to praise you together, to grow together, to serve together, and most importantly, to go out and spread your gospel together. And I pray that's what happens now. For everyone in this room and for those who can't be in the house today, though we wish they were here, we're glad that they can at least tune in. Lord, I pray this word will touch them. This word will challenge us. It will encourage us. Encourage us. It will cause us to look to you in a new way, to take a step closer in our relationship and understanding of your greatness, that you are the ultimate father. We pray these things in Jesus' almighty name. Amen. 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 So this morning, we are going to begin a brand new series in the book of John, where we are going to cover the first four chapters of John over the next 11 weeks. 
as we will look at Jesus' impact in the world. His impact in the world. Now, the Gospel of John is written by a guy named, anybody know? John, that's right. Very good. <laughs> Sharp. Sharp. The nine, and uh, this is the same John who wrote the first, second, and third letters of John, and the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, which we'll start studying sometime later this fall. The context of this book is it's been about 50 years after the life of Christ. And the Gospel of Matthew's out there, the Gospel of Mark is out there, the Gospel of Luke is out there, and John decides to write his own Gospel, sharing his own view and experiences of the life of Christ to give us additional information. And you'll see that the Gospel of John is very unique from the other Gospels as it shares some stories that the other ones do not. But the overarching focus of this Gospel is Jesus as the Son of God. As Jesus, as he says in John 14, 6, is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. And it is my prayer through this series that all of us, either for the first time, or we will be reminded that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That we will marvel at the name of Christ. And this is important, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, we can get used, used to hearing about Christ. We, the, the things I'm going to talk about, we've probably heard so many times if you've grown up in the church, you can't count them on all your toes and fingers. And we're not careful, we can check out because we've heard this before. Even as a pastor, I can preach on these truths so often, if I'm not careful, they'll no longer affect my soul. They'll no longer move me. Well, the book of John is the perfect cure for this complacency. As it totally explores who Christ is. In fact, John employs 22 different names and titles for Jesus. He calls him the Christ the Lord, the Word, the Logos, calls him God, the life, the true light, and many others. Calls him 22 different titles. Among the 256 different titles you find in Scripture for Christ. 256 words they needed to describe Christ. In fact, Billy Sunday, who was an evangelist over a century ago, he said this. He said that there are 265, excuse me, 265 different names in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I suppose it's because he was indefinitely beyond all that any one name could ever express. I think John would agree with him. And I pray that this series will cause us to marvel at Christ yet again. Amen, church? Amen. So this morning, what we're going to do as we jump in, we're going to cover what's considered the, the, the poetic prologue to the Gospel of John. It's a poetic summary of everything that he is going to describe about Christ in his account of the life of Jesus. And I don't always ask you to do this, but if you're physically able and if you're not, that's okay. Would you stand with me as I read this passage for you this morning? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, church? Amen. You may be seated. So what is the first thing that John wants us to know about Jesus? Jesus calls, John calls Jesus the word or the logos in the Greek. But the word logos in the Greek has a, a deeper meaning than when we use the word word in the English. It meant purpose or reason, the, the logic for life. And John used this term on purpose because he lived in a society that was concerned with finding the logos which means they were looking for the absolute truth and reason for existence. And this was started by the Stoics. So you see philosophy born out of this search. So there's a meaning, there's a purpose to this life, and we just need to find it. This was their belief. And we get this because whether we all admit it or not, we're all looking for the logos in life. We're all looking for the logos. And so like today, they saw many abstract ideas and theories about what the Logos was. And like today, some gave up and said, no, there's no Logos, it's, it's just random. But then comes along Christianity and says, no, no, you're right, there is a Logos. There is a meaning to life. But if you want to find it, you have to have a relationship with a person not with some abstract philosophy. And this explanation of Christian logos found in the relationship with Christ, it swept through the Roman Empire. It swept across the world, and I pray today that it'll sweep across our hearts. So John says, Jesus is the logos, and then he said, let me tell you who this logos is. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, John is saying Jesus is the Logos because he is God, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And this is the concept of the Trinity that he is opening up to us. This is new to you, or maybe a recap. The Trinity is defined, the belief that there is one God, but that God exists in three persons 
or equal in their attributes, and yet individual and distinct in their offices and ministries. Like we sang earlier, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit, for they are three in one. And this is also often one of those topics that are difficult to wrap our heads around. I often say it makes it sound like God has a multiple personality disorder. And so what I usually do is I go to my favorite illustration to do my best to describe this. I say, let's, let's say that we have three guys who start a company. Dominic, we'll say John and Steve, they go into business together. And we'll say, Steve, he's, Steve becomes the president. We'll say uh, Dominic becomes the vice president. We'll say uh, John is the, the head of sales. Does that work for you, John, head of sales? All right, you'll take it. Thank you. I appreciate your flexibility. Now, in this company, Steve has a greater role as president than John or Dominic. But that greater role as president, president doesn't make him any more or any less human than John or Dominic. They just hold different roles, different duties, different responsibilities, but they're still equal members of the human race. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit and God the Father and Christ the Son, they all have different roles that they play, but they are still equal members of the Godhead. I just solved the Trinity for you, right? Thousands of years, it's clear as a bell. No, no. This doesn't totally explain the Trinity. It's not a perfect illustration because many theologians will point out, and I agree that the term person is not really a perfect word to describe the Trinity. Because when we use the word person, we usually understand it to mean distinct physical individuals that are separate from other individuals. But God is numerically one. Deuteronomy, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. One. Yet, within this single divine essence are three individual substances that we call persons in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to take any more time on this today for the sake of time. And it's a very difficult concept to understand of how something can be one and three at the same time. And I sure know how many words I could go on all day. We'll never fully understand it. But I think we also need to remember that if there is a God that exists that is eternal, outside of time, outside of the constraints of our dimensions and everything, there are going to be aspects of him we just do not understand. But I think that's part of the joy of following God because it keeps us searching and hungering more for him. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So Jesus is the Logos because he is God. He's also Logos because he is the creator. Far too many of us, we just see Jesus as showing up on the scene in Bethlehem, all up in a manger, being born. But scripture tells us that Jesus, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, was there from creation, made a major role in creation. We, we read this verse right before all creatures of our God and King. Colossians 1.16, so it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, all authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is God. 
He is creator. Now, he could have been God, he could have been creator, and he could have been distance, just playing, a, playing pool up there in, in the galaxy with the angels. But John also says that he is the light. He chose to be more. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we just got done with our series on Genesis where we talked about how the darkness of sin entered the world, changed everything. But like a candle in a dark room, light drives darkness away. And the brilliant, glorious light of our Lord Jesus Christ, John says, will utterly destroy Satan's realm of darkness. And it said it's already started. He says in 1 John, since Jesus came into the world, the darkness is already passing away. And that's why it's my hope that we will marvel at Christ. And some of you, you're dealing with such darkness in your life. Some know it. Some don't know it. It's there. Sin, struggling, struggles, things from your past, the way you view yourself, there's a darkness you're battling. Jesus is the one that can light it up. He can light up that darkness. And I, and I say this because I see it in his word and I say it because I've experienced in my life. We could spend all day me talking about the darknesses in my life both outside of me and the ones I've caused myself and how Jesus, time and time again, as I've looked at him, he's lit them up. He's lit up the darkness. That's why he's my hope. That's why I sing. That's why I praise. Because there's no darkness he can't light up. Some of you could stand up in your seats now. You could talk about the darkness in your life that Jesus has lit up. And that's why we have hope in every situation as we look to him. And that's why the driving force of our lives must be on sharing this light with a world that desperately needs it. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you got a light, you don't cover it up. You don't cover it up. you got to shine the light to chase away the darkness. Church, can you hear me this morning? Jesus can light up the darkness. You can light it up. There ain't nothing you're going through, nothing you, people you know are going through that Jesus cannot light up. I'll praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit, for they are three in one. Now John seems to switch things up here in verse six because he mentions another John. And at first you're like, what is he doing? Is he talking in third person here? Because that's a little prideful. But he's actually talking about a different John. John never talks about himself in his Gospel of John. Never mentions himself once. He only mentions two other Johns. He mentions one John four times. That was Peter's dad. John was apparently a common name back then. And in here, what he's mentioning is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He's the one who baptized Christ before his ministry. Now, why is he bringing up John the Baptist? Well, see, before Jesus, John the Baptist was on the scene, and he made a big impact if you've read his stories, and he had a bunch of people that were following him. And even though John Baptist said, look, I'm not the light, Jesus is the light, some people still followed him. 
And so John's trying to remind people, John the Baptist is not the light. Jesus is the light. Not John, Jesus. And this is a problem we see today. Anytime uh, people who consider themselves Catholic look to the Pope as the vicar of Christ, which means instead of Christ, the replacement for Christ, the stand-in for Christ, or even evangelicals and Protestants, anytime they take a pastor and they lift him up on this pedestal as if he's more spiritual and holy than thou, we make the same mistake. No man is the light. Only Jesus is the light. And when we don't have our eyes on him, we have our eyes on a person, it causes us to miss our eyes on him. Now, how does the world respond to this light? It says he was rejected by the world. He, he wasn't received by his own people, which is kind of weird. Because who doesn't want a savior? Now, we all want a savior. I mean, who doesn't want a, someone to come in and just fix everything? Just make it right. We all do. So why would people reject him? Well, because Jesus was unwilling to come to people on their terms. See, everybody wants a Savior, but they want that Savior on their terms. I mean, this is how we vote for leadership. Voting's coming up, midterms in November. You can't escape it on TV. Ads will start popping up soon, left, right, and everywhere else. But who do we vote for? We vote for people in authority who agree with us and who are going to do things our way. And then we, and we take this independence that we have and, and, we, and we, we direct it towards God that it should be the same relationship. There may be somebody, some of you watching online, might be some of you sitting in here, you love the idea of Jesus. You love the idea of Jesus saving you. But you haven't went all in for Jesus. You haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus. You haven't repented fully of your old life and followed him because maybe you struggle with some of the things that you read in the Bible. Now, it's not wrong to have questions. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus can't get to my heart until he gets through my head. But you have to understand, even if you don't get the answers that you like, Jesus is not customizable. He is not moldable. As David Platt said, he has not left himself open to interpretation, adaptation, innovation, or any kind of alteration. He has revealed himself clearly through his word, and we get no right to personalize him. You either accept all of him or you accept none of him. I say this because we live in a world, and we talked about this at the men's study on Wednesday night. We talked about the importance of truth, and we live in a society that likes to make everything our own truth. We are playing, whether we admit it or not, we're playing God. I got my truth. I'm my own God. I got my truth. You got yours. And we replace it with fashionable truths that fit us, that feel comfortable to us. But Jesus said yet again in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no way to the Father but through me. However, for those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And this is a great reminder that not everyone is considered a child of God. This is in this America, I don't know if this is in other countries, but in America, it's got this thing that God just, he loves everybody, just everyone. And that he accepts us as we are. No, 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 he accepts us in spite of who we are. As you read scripture, you are one of two things. You're either a child of God or you're an enemy of God. That's it. And to become a child of God, you must receive him. It means to take hold of, to grasp, to obtain. Have you received him as your Lord and Savior this morning? John says the moment that you put your faith in him as Savior and Lord, that you repent and you begin to follow him in his, in his word, your relationship completely changes. It says he becomes your father. He adopts you as his child. None of us would walk out and adopt our enemy, but Christ does. Welcome into my family, he says. And it is so critical that you understand this. It is so critical that you get this is something that he does because far too many of you grew up in churches that taught you it's something that you do. You can do it. You can undo it. It's dependent on your power and your strength and your obedience. That's the biggest crock in the Bible. It's something that he does. Look, it says, even if you receive him, he gave the right. You can receive him and he not gave the right. He gave it. It is a gift. And you got to understand this because if you understand it, you will have the joy that, and the peace that passes all understanding. It will be a foundation in your lives. It will keep you next to him and near him instead of running for him when you do something wrong, thinking he's going to kick you to the curb. I mean, if you think about the relationship difference. If you're an employee and you have a boss and you slack off, you misbehave, you show up late, you stop caring about your job. What happens? You're going to get the ax. You're going to get fired. Why? Because your relationship is based on performance. It's based on a cost and benefit analysis. However, if you are a good father and you have children and some of them really start to misbehave, what happens? A good father, his heart becomes more engaged. He becomes more intense as he seeks what's wrong with his children. He wants to correct the, the way they go because he loves them and he cares for them. He engages with them more. Far too many of us, when we do wrong, we won't say it out loud, but the way, but out loud, but the way that we act, we, we distance ourselves from God because we feel like he wants nothing to do with us. Because we think he's a boss and we're an employee. No, he is a father and we are a son or daughter. He wants us to run to him. Because it's a relationship not based on cost benefit, but on covenant, on unconditional faithfulness and commitment. It is amazing when you understand this because it will cause you to run to God in every scenario. And there's a peace and a comfort, and a stability that he is with you and directing you. In fact, I, I heard this song yesterday. I don't remember the name of the song, but I had the, I didn't really love this song, but I had this one line that was awesome. It said this, on my best day, I am a child of God. 
on my worst day, I am a child of God. I love this. On your, your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. On your best day, you're a child of the Almighty. On your worst day, when you haven't read your Bible, when you haven't said your prayer, when you've given in temptation, when you have failed to step out in faith, you're still a child of God. Oh, I pray. I pray for anyone in here who hasn't had that sink in, that they would search the scriptures. They'd stop listening to their feelings and listening to the world, listening to the enemy. And they start listening to scripture. Allow it to change their lives. And then every time we mess up and we screw up, we'd just be like, Instead of sitting there, I mean, we would repent. We'd feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But when that, when that defeat comes in, that God is done with it, that he's going to kick us to the curb, then we're out of it. Then we would stand up and just say, on my worst, child, worst day, I'm a child of God. A hundred times we have to until we chase those voices of the devil away. Can you hear me, church? On my worst day, I'm a child of God. And he reinforces that this is like a God thing and not a, an us thing as he goes on. Because he goes on to say, God came here. He said he came to us. We didn't have to go find the Logos. The Logos came to us, Philippians 2.5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He chose to take the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He gave it all up, came down to us. Because he knew we could not do it on our own. And this should bring us even more hope. Man, in our world, everybody will agree that people are broken. Though I'm starting to think we're maybe even losing that truth a little bit, but that's another sermon. But you go into the bookstore and the self-help section is a mile long. You, you stay up late in the morning, you're watching infomercials, infomercials about how they can fix yourself. The world at its core is, knows that we need work, that we are broken. But these are all faulty because they still rely on broken humans fixing themselves. Man, my, my, my battery died in my van this weekend. I did not walk out there and see my van reading a manual on how to change a battery. Why? That'd be silly. Because a van does not have the ability to fix itself. And in the same way, the same silliness when we think we have the ability to fix ourselves. Most of us, we don't even know what's wrong with us. We don't even know where to look. I mean, if it's all about us, we have to, first we have to know what's wrong, we have to know where to look, then we have to, to have the strength to, to, to be able to follow through and do it. And then what happens, we ultimately get defeated as we think other people overcome their stuff, but we can't overcome ours. It's just defeat after defeat after defeat. But with Jesus, it's not about what's discovered. It's about what's been revealed. You see, when God takes the initiative, new possibilities are born. Divine power is released into a broken world. And there's new life for broken lives. 
broken relationships and broken marriages. And so that's what God did. He came to earth and he said, here I am. Let me show you the way and the truth. Let me show you the life. So what do I want you to do with this? My prayer for all of you, wherever you need to, is to take him in. Charles Spurgeon said, put it like this. He said, pastor lived many years ago. He said, take it. Take, for example, he said, if there's a piece of bread on the table, and I tell you that I'll have that bread from my own, I can take that bread in my hand, and you can say, well, I'll take it out of your hand. Charles Spurgeon said, well, I'll do more than that. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to chew it. I'm going to digest it, that it may become part of my own being. He said, there's no way you're going to get away from me then. And he goes on to say, church, it is the same with Christ. He said, poor souls, take him. Believe in him. Trust him. Receive him. Follow him. And then the more that the devil tries to take him away, trust him more and more and more. Plunge yourself deeper and deeper into the sea of salvation that is Jesus Christ. And to the man in whom they wrote, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And some say, like, I don't know enough. I don't know a lot. I don't know a lot. Hmm. You don't need to understand substitution, justification, eschatology. You don't need to know those things to experience and sacrifice Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Spurgeon goes on to say that a man can eat dinner without actually understanding how it nourishes him. A man can accept what Christ has done with knowing, without knowing how it fully works. Indeed, he's not going to ever fully understand how it works until he accepts it. He said, like a man who eats a tasty meal and goes, man, what's in this? He says, in the same way, you can accept Christ and begin to watch him in your life. Some of you here, you may not know Christ at all. Some of you, you know Christ as part of the church and you're here for religious duties. Some of you, you say you know Christ, but you don't feed yourself with him, his word. He's a Sunday thing only. Some of you have been in the church, you've been following him for so long, but it's become duty. It's become routine. It's become tradition. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life that whoever eats of me will never hunger again. Oh, that's my prayer. My prayer is that we will all marvel at Christ. That in the areas of our lives that the Holy Spirit will show us where we, we are not taking him in. Where we're not digesting him into our lives. Where we're not marveling at his salvation and his Holy Spirit. 
that we would fall in love with him all over again at who he is and what he has done. That we may proclaim his glorious majesty to all around us. 